Detective Trap contains descriptions of violence and sexual content and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. On Friday morning, March 14th, 2014, Detective Julissa Trapp walked into a massive trash sorting plant in north-central Anaheim. It is the most organized chaos that you will ever have the opportunity to witness. And the smell is... I mean, if you can stick your nose in your trash can after Thanksgiving with all the leftovers that have been sitting there for a week in the heat... It's called Republic Waste Services. Tons of garbage surge through there every day across a series of elevated, six-foot-wide conveyor belts. A worker had spotted what looked like a human foot protruding from the trash on one of them. The belt was stopped and the police summoned, but the other belts kept rolling, and the clanging and clunking of the machinery echoed off the walls and the high ceiling. Trap watched as garbage trucks backed up to the unloading bays, one after another, shoving out mountains of already crushed debris. And there's tractor trailers coming around with the big claw, like you see in Toy Story, just picking up mounds of trash and putting them through their conveyor belt system. When Trap arrived, one of her partners on the homicide squad, Bruce Lynn, was standing on the conveyor belt near the body. Lynn was a transfer from the fugitive hunting squad, where he'd spent years undercover in dirty clothes, and he had not hesitated to wade into the trash. The veteran detectives had seen murder in many forms, but the coldness of the scene struck them both. This one was different to me. More cold, more sadistic, less human, and it's hard to add something to snuffing somebody's life out just because you chose to. The victim was a young woman, unclothed, with no ID, covered with grime. Her jaw was broken, her leg was snapped, and her skull was crushed, maybe by the body's progress through the machinery. The body was wrapped in a shredded blue tarp. The detectives were presented with a few immediate problems. They had to find the name of the victim, and they had to figure out how she got there. The plant was fed by thousands of trash bins around the county, any one of which the body could have been dropped in. The detectives decided they'd have to collect every piece of trash in a wide radius around the body. You know, me thinking, buddy, I think we need to go at least 25, maybe 30 feet in each direction of the conveyor belt, at least from where she is. And like anything with an address, we need to collect because, I mean, she really could have come from anywhere. The only way we are ever going to stand a chance of solving this is if we can narrow down where she came from. Lynn was digging through the trash in search of anything that might have a usable fingerprint. He found a tube of acrylic sealant. Trem glaze caulking. I've caulked a lot of things in my house. I saw a tube of caulking, and all I can say is this, is that it was the only thing that I saw amidst the entire 40 to 50 yards of three feet high garbage that was hard, solid, smooth, and fairly clean. You put those things together and you can come up with a fingerprint if there's one there. So with gloves, I picked it up from the tip and I dropped it into an evidence bag 
And I thought, oh, Lord, let that be something. Figuring out where the woman came from would be difficult. Determining who she was might be easier. Beneath the dirt on her neck, under her jaw, there was a cursive tattoo that read, Jody. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, I'm Christopher Gofford. This is Detective Trap. This is episode two, Circuits. When people are stopped by police in Anaheim, their tattoos are fed into a database. In 2013, a woman was detained on suspicion of prostitution. She was from Ardmore, Oklahoma. An officer had made a record of a tattoo on her neck that said Jody. The young woman was named Jeray Estep. By this method in March 2014, police got a tentative ID on the body at the trash sorting plant. Detective Trapp thought Estep, who was 21, fit the profile of a circuit girl, a sex worker who cycled through Anaheim, Oakland, Las Vegas, and maybe a few other cities for a few days before moving on. Back at her desk with the reek of the plant still in her clothes, Trapp began faxing the hotels in the resort district around Disneyland, trying to find the room where Estep might have been staying while she was in town. This didn't bring any results. The real heart of the sex trade in Anaheim is a few blocks west. A mile-long north-south stretch of Beach Boulevard, vice cops call The Track. It's a wide road that bisects the city's far western corner. To the north, it spills into Buena Park, close to Knott's Berry Farm. To the south, it turns into the city of Stanton. And the girls range from what's known as a circuit girl, where they travel across the country, quite frankly, to what's known as a track of prostitution that's just known for it. Well-dressed, fit, and pretty, and you wonder, hmm, interesting. From that all the way down to a ripped, torn, dirty flannel with a syringe in her hand. It runs the gamut. That's Beach Boulevard. It was here that detectives decided to concentrate their search for Estep's last room. We divided into three different groups, and we started going hotel to motel to hotel, showing her picture, showing her name. Do you have her registered here? During her years in sex crimes, Trapp became familiar block by block with the landscape of 50-buck-a-night stucco flophouses with metal bars on their check-in windows some of them kitschy mid-century motels that sprang up to capitalize on Disneyland traffic and have long since decayed. Gas stations, donut shops, psychics, fast food joints, and an ever-shifting gallery of petty crooks, stick-up artists, parolees, and drug zombies. She could guess the popular drugs by the gait of their captives, the streets cycling from crack to meth to bath salts to heroin. Off and on, Trapp had worked undercover here as part of the so-called John program. Basically, we posed as prostitutes and we 
walk Beach Boulevard and let Johns come and solicit you, and then they get busted. And uh, it doesn't take very long once you start walking Beach Boulevard before you get your first uh, male coming up and soliciting you. You know, when you first start, you you think that, you know, you're going to do your hair and you're going to do your makeup and, you know, you want to look attractive and, you know, want to wear high heels. And then, you know, you quickly realize that you don't wash your hair and uh, you do wear a tank top and maybe some short shorts and some flip flops. You know, I'll approach these Johns and I'm like, hey, sugar, you looking for a date? And of course, now I have fun with it. And I try to work in lines from Pretty Woman, you know, which extra bonus points if you can throw them in. What's your name? What do you want it to be? One of Trapp's useful masks made possible by her ability to sound very young was that of a vulnerable and naive underage girl looking for a daddy. The vice unit would put her on the phone with pimps and she'd pretend to be 15. I talk on the phone. I talk on the phone. I text. Well, I call, call this pimp up. Right. Yeah. Next thing you know, he's 15, 16. Yeah. Of course, working a phone was safe. Working undercover on Beach Boulevard was something else, a reminder of how dangerous it was for the women out there. Some undercover detectives will approach a John's car on the passenger side to put distance between themselves and the driver as they assess him. I've just made the decision to to go up to the driver's window so not only I can get a clean wire, but I can see who I'm dealing with. And, you know, if there's a gun in the car, if there's somebody else in the car, I have a better look. And then that unfortunately just open you up to them sometimes touching you. Um, and <laughs> I, I have been groped and uh, you... I just kind of play it off. I slap their hand very playfully and I say, you can't get that for free and kind of make it work and, you know, back away. She'd walk the would-be customers back to a hotel room where her partners were waiting. You walk them to a room and then uh, once you're inside, you know, kind of like you see on TV, they're in, a, you know, the next room over, they'll jump out in their ninja suits and, and take the guy down. So, but there is that uncomfortable time when you're walking from the parking lot into the room, you know, and you're, you know, trying to open the the motel room and they're standing right behind you. As she got out the pass key to open the door, she could sometimes feel the man's breath on the back of her neck. It was in just this part of town and just these sort of motels that detectives were looking that night in March 2014 for traces of Jeray Estep who had just arrived from Oklahoma. Within hours, they found where she had been staying. It was room 217 of the Anaheim Lodge at 837 South Beach Boulevard. She had checked in but never returned. The cleaners had found her room empty and removed her belongings, including a Hello Kitty purse and a Greyhound ticket from Oklahoma to California, and management had stored it. Trapp climbed the exterior stairway to the motel's second floor and stepped into the room. There were no signs of a struggle. Inside a drawer, Jeray Estep had left a few things the cleaners had missed. Toiletries, contact lens solution, a stack of $730 in cash, suggesting Estep had had a profitable run on the street, a bag of lifesavers, and her Oklahoma ID card. The face on it looked like a small-town beauty pageant winner, 
with skin as unlined as a teenager's. She had arrived on a Greyhound bus. And so we knew that she had only been here less than a day, 12 hours, really, from when she went missing. Alone among her partners on the homicide squad, Trapp pinned her victims' faces on the corkboard at her cubicle and bought a rosary for them all. She kept the faces up long after the cases were solved. She referred to victims by first name and called their families on birthdays and anniversaries. Every murder cop must strike some balance between caring and coldness, between empathy for the victim and the clinical detachment required to solve the case. In Trapp's case, it's a vivid contest. Part of her drive came from a connection to the families, which meant entering their bottomless pain. Some of her partners wondered how she managed this year after year. She was about to enter another family story. The day after the body was discovered, the day she officially became the lead detective on the case, Trapp was at her dining room table on the phone. On the other end, in Oklahoma, she had Jeray Estep's mother. She had to give her the worst possible news by phone rather than in person, and it was a tightrope walk. And it's cruel. And in, in, in a certain way, it is cruel because there is a fine line of trying to gather information and still maintaining a sense of rapport with the family. But you also know that the minute you deliver this news, they're not going to want to talk to you. The mother demanded to know what was going on. Her daughter wasn't answering her phone. Trapp needed basic information, like Jeray's cell phone number, so she could get a warrant for her phone records. Trapp asked her when she had last seen her daughter. A week ago, the mother replied, and as far as she knew, her daughter was in Oklahoma. She asked if she was alive. Trapp sidestepped the question and asked if she had her daughter's phone number. Yes, she had the number, but would she explain what this was about? Trapp said, I'm sorry to inform you that yesterday your daughter was found deceased. And then she listened to the mother screaming and the phone went dead. After a while, Trapp got her on the phone again. Jeray's mother wanted to know, Are you sure it's my daughter? Trapp asked if her daughter had any tattoos. Jody Estep said, She has my name on her neck. Detective Julissa Trapp soon learned that there had been a man in the victim's life. He was 27, and he called himself Menace. He became a suspect immediately. Menace was the father of Jeray Estep's two-year-old son. When Trapp looked at her phone records, she found he had exchanged more than 100 calls or texts with her on the day she disappeared. I mean, it was, it was very apparent the control that he had over her. Um, constant, constant communication, and that's very typical between a pimp and his girl. Complete and total control. Nevertheless, Menace, who was apparently still in Oklahoma, denied this repeatedly when Trapp got him on the phone. I got a female, Menace said. That's just the mother of my child. She begged him to be honest with her, and he kept insisting he knew nothing about prostitution. 
And like in Jeray's case, you know, her pimp controlled her from Oklahoma. She's still expected to check in and let him know how much money she made and send him the money. Unfortunately, it's it's pretty common. Um, and these young girls become victims to these pimps who, I think, start a relationship with them and, and you know, let them know that, hey, I'm going to take care of you. And somehow they they make it seem okay to to earn money this way. And it starts with them buying them things and taking care of them and taking them to different locations. And, you know, they confuse that affection as love. And next thing you know. Jody Estep told me that her daughter met Menace when she was a 17-year-old high school student in Ardmore. She was just sucked into his his lies and manipulations. When Jody confronted Jeray about it, Jeray insisted that it was her choice, that Menace wasn't forcing her to do anything. But then again, I never believed it then, and reading her diary proves that that's not what she truly wanted. I watched my daughter change from the person she was, and I watched her trying to make him happy, doing everything he wanted, to wanting to get out of it. He wanted that money, wanted that money, to where she decided to go. Oh, he would he would say, L.A. is the place to go. L.A. is where the money is. You need to go out there. Yeah, he tried to get her to go out there for a while. Before, she just wanted, you know, the house and the white picket fence. She's always wanted that. She never really changed on what she wanted. Jody told me that she didn't have a lot of trust in the police, but she remembers a conversation with Detective Trapp early in the case. She gave me her word and she promised me that she would not stop until she found who did this to my daughter because she was so impacted by the fact, the way that they, they disposed of Jeray's body and how they did it, you know? And I, and I remember telling her, don't promise me that if you can't keep your word. And she, she said, no, I give you my word. I will not rest until I find who killed your daughter. There is a sign taped to a window by Detective Trapp's cubicle in the homicide unit. It says, you can't stop love. I inherited the sign when I came into the unit. I was told I can't uh, take it down. One of the department philosophers had taped it up as a wry commentary on a pattern they saw constantly in murders and suicides. Someone deranged by jealousy and unable to let go of a husband or wife or lover. It also applied to people, mostly women, who were trapped in relationships they didn't recognize as abusive or didn't know how to escape. When they finally decide to leave, that the risk for that happening occurs. In sex crimes, Trapp once worked the case of a 17-year-old girl who had been impregnated by her pastor. Trapp remembered how hard it was to untangle the girl's feelings of love from her sense of violation. Trapp had seen variations on the theme her whole career. Lost women and runaway girls trying desperately to fill some emptiness in the unshakable grip of bad men. Every detective draws from a well of personal experience and Trapp's late teens had given her a sense of how easy it was for one bad choice to compound another when the circumstances were right. Before she became Julissa Trapp, back when she was still Julissa Rios, 
She was growing up with her parents and a younger brother in a spotless yellow house on Westmont Drive in central Anaheim. Her mother was a homemaker who spoke little English. She had old-school Catholic views and imposed a strict curfew. Julissa Rios ran cross-country for her high school. She was working as an Anaheim police explorer, lining up for drill inspection at police headquarters and absorbing everything she could about police work. Just from the very beginning, I knew that I had found my home. Anything that the police department could use kind of extra hands for, we would volunteer. For that reason, you got a uniform. So I remember getting called out once to look for evidence in a field, and we would help them do grid searches. And, you know, that's really exciting because now you're working with homicide detectives looking for real evidence. In no small part, she says, it was the sight of female officers that emboldened her to pursue police work. Seeing female police officers um, doing the tasks and realizing I'm not any different than them, and if they can do it, I certainly can do it. The stubbornness that got her through the police academy also threatened to derail her as a teenager. At 16, she sneaked out of the yellow house to meet a boyfriend. Her mom found out and kicked her out. Julissa Rios was a proud, headstrong girl, so she grabbed a red suitcase and left. You know, when my mom said to me, you either obey the rules or you get out, you know, I said, fine, I'm, I'm going to get out. Rebelde. ¿Cómo se dice rebelde? Rebellious. Oh, she was. She got a job at a yogurt shop and crashed with friends. Pretty soon, she found herself living with a guy twice her age. He had money. He said he loved her. Just your average-looking guy who, you know, looking back, I think had a thing for younger women. He just happened to catch me in a place where I, I, you know, I had broken up with my high school crush, my first love. Um, I'd been kicked out of my home. I really had no place to go. I didn't want to go crawling back home because I didn't want to seem like a failure to my parents. And yeah, he offered me a place to live and a, an alternate reality. Once, when she returned from an outing with the Explorers, she found the man she was living with had scissored up her clothes. He hadn't wanted her to go, and this was his way of punishing her. During that period, she didn't talk to her mom, but she kept in touch with her dad. He was her best friend and idol. He never judged her. He would just say, yeah, you just need to come home. When her father learned that her grades had plunged from A's to F's at Savannah High School, he turned to Rick Martinez, the cop who ran the Police Explorer program, and he said, please do something for Julie. Martinez gave her a come-to-Jesus speech. Pull it together, get your grades up to C's, or you're out of the Explorers. You know, I had, uh, I had very good mentors that were by lifeline. They saw what I was going through, and they pulled me aside, and they said, hey, snap out of it, what are you doing? Remember this long life goal that you have? You're going to throw it all the way. Get your shit together. The thought of not getting to be a cop crystallized the stakes. And she made a choice. She left the older guy. She packed up her red suitcase and moved back into the yellow house. I uh, got a chance to live. And I don't say I regret it because it may be who I am today. But it's definitely not a, a point in my life that I would want to repeat. Could it have spiraled into something more? Absolutely. Oh, it definitely helps me relate with some of the victims that I ran into later and in understanding how 
impressionable and how vulnerable you are and how easy it is for someone to take advantage of that. And then once you're in the situation, how difficult it is to get out, especially when you don't have resources. I had resources and I was ultimately able to escape that that relationship. But there's a lot of different reasons why women stay. She got her grades up and got into the academy. Her little brother helped her shine her boots. Her mom ran a lint cleaner over her uniform and arranged her nameplate just so and studded the uniform for stray fibers. If the instructor saw a dangling thread, she'd get screamed at. And he's like, oh my God, Rios, are you going to hang yourself by that rope? Her mom made big enchilada dinners for her and her fellow cadets and let them practice arrest techniques in the front yard. The recruit class started with 35 people. Of the 26 who graduated, she was one of three women. These days, Julissa Trapp speaks of her teenage years as an abyss avoided. She'll tell you that police work saved her. Family saved her. Some kind of grace she didn't understand saved her. Jaray Estep might have escaped if she'd lived a little longer. As Trapp pursued her killer, she was quickly able to rule out the man who called himself Menace, whose phone record showed he'd been in Oklahoma when she vanished. Not long ago, I sent Menace a letter. By then, he was in prison serving a 15-year sentence for unrelated charges of racketeering. Police said he was a member of the Hoover Crips, which was linked to a series of drive-by shootings in Oklahoma. I wanted to give him a chance to respond to the allegations about him pimping out Jeray, the mother of his son. I asked him if he cared to comment on their relationship. He called me from lockup with a question. Is there money in that? On the fourth day of the investigation, Detective Julissa Trapp stood in the medical examiner's office as Jeray Estep's body was autopsied. That's when we start realizing just how brutal her murder was and uh, learning a little bit more about what happened to her in the last hours of her life. We're able to see she's got a bite on her right forearm and a uh, significant amount of bruising on her face and uh, neck area. It looked like she had been strangled or smothered, and there were signs of sexual assault. The medical examiner removed a tampon from the body, which they sent to the lab in the hope it might hold identifiable DNA. Trapp watched as metal shavings were tweezed out of the victim's mouth. She wondered how they got there, maybe from the garbage bin she had been left in. Trapp and her partners, Detective J.D. Duran and Bruce Lynn, quickly became what they called garbologists. So I told JD, I, I need I need to know where, where the trash came from. They asked Republic Waste Services, which ran the recycling plant where the body had been found, for a list of pickup locations that fed into the plant. There were hundreds of sites along trash routes that snaked through Anaheim and nearby cities. She had injuries that were consistent with being crushed or compacted. And so... We kind of asked them, like, you know, what could do that? And they, they tell us that there is several containers that do have, like, a self-compactor in them. So we asked for those first. The trash route search was too big for just the homicide squad, and soon dozens of Anaheim cops were fanning out to find the dumpsters. 
Trapp handed out photos of the debris on the conveyor belt where Estep's body had been found, and she told searchers to look for trash that matched, the kind of shredded blue tarp the body had been wrapped in, residential construction debris, metal shavings. If there were surveillance cameras nearby, she told them to get the footage, too. They had to work fast before it disappeared. Surveillance cameras often erase their footage automatically after a week. Initial list includes um, some very large commercial facilities. They got another list, a tract of residential homes. They brought in the police explorers to help. Two, three hundred homes. It was a large area, so we dropped them off and gave them a bunch of flyers, and off they went. Meanwhile, detectives canvassed Beach Boulevard with Jeray Estep's photo and talked to what Trapp called every Cretan and zombie who prowled the area. And at the same time, we're working on Jeray's cell phone records and trying to determine who she had contact with in the past 24 hours. This led them to a man who called Jeray Estep at 7.08 p.m. on her last night alive. The surveillance team is following him, and he just looks like your typical guy. Hard worker, just has a family, just doesn't strike me as I'm out killing. Just a factory worker, male Hispanic, didn't speak English. So I made the decision about 30 hours into the investigation to stop him. He was very cooperative, and he said, yes, I, I met, I met Jeray. He obviously didn't know her name, but yes, I, I, I met this woman on Beach Boulevard. I solicited her for 10 minutes of sex for $40, and we went to her room, and we had an encounter. And when I left, she was very much alive. I'm not responsible for killing her, basically. He volunteered to take a polygraph. He uh, volunteered his DNA and said, you know, anything I can do to help, but ultimately I, I didn't kill her. All day long, cops were coming by Trapp's desk in the homicide squad to drop off USB drives with surveillance footage of trash bins. Amid all her other tasks, she studied it. Some you can fast forward and, and some you can't. You know, it depends on the software for the videos. Some it's much more clearer than others. It's very tedious work and you, you just, you know that you have to do it. That brought no results. She got another lead from Jeray Estep's mother. Jody calls me and she tells me that Jeray also had another pimp that she worked with in California. This individual named Michael. I find out this Michael is on parole and he's living in Oakland. So I've got a team working on him and uh, writing search warrants to get up on his phone. And of course, when they finally come back, the records show that Michael was in Oakland when this happened, when she went missing. There was still another suspect, an auto shop employee. Motel surveillance captured Estep climbing out of his car her last day alive. Police put a tracker on his car and followed him for days. They ruled him out. So it's day five. I'm pretty frustrated on day five. Um, I'm sitting in our cafe, Cafe 10%. You know, we're all, all good thought happens at Cafe 10%. It's kind of where we all game plan and throw ideas out there. Cafe 10% is a little gathering spot near her desk with a high-end coffee maker. The origin of the name she won't tell me. It's secret. There's a mantle above the coffee machine crowded with beer taps, which is a kind of shrine to former colleagues. Coors Light, Newcastle, Goose Island, 
Every member of the homicide team got a specific beer tap, even teetotalers like Bruce Lynn, and it goes up on that detective's cubicle wall so the supervisor can look through his window and see immediately who's on tap for the next murder. It's considered extremely bad luck to mess with another detective's tap. Traps has the label of Dead Guy Ale, an Oregon brew, which she'll ceremoniously put on the mantle when she leaves homicide. Anyway, that's the Cafe 10%. Best place to get a cup of coffee. And I remember I'm sitting there, I'm pretty frustrated, I'm, and I'm kind of talking to JD, and I said, and I remember telling him, like, there is so much trash. How are we ever going to figure out where she came from? We have to figure out where she came from. It's the only way we're going to get anywhere. One of the detectives working the case, Mark Lillimon, had an idea. And he says, hey, have you thought about running parolees on Beach Boulevard? He's like, you know, a lot of parolees have GPS monitors now. Have you, yeah, have you thought about running them? And I remember going, do you know how many parolees are going to hit on Beach Boulevard for, we would have to run it for at least 24 hours. Like how many parolees are going to be on Beach Boulevard in a 24-hour period? Like that list is going to be humongous. Around the same time, Trapp's supervisor asked her to meet with detectives from Santa Ana and Newport Beach. Both cities had open cases on missing or murdered women. Trapp was skeptical. She had so much else to do, and it didn't strike her as the best use of time at this harried, pedal-to-the-metal stage in the investigation. I thought it was a little too soon to be having a meeting, but my uh, administration thought differently, and I, I just kind of wanted to focus on my own murder and not take my time away from that. From the start, Trapp had wondered whether there might be a connection between Estep's death and the disappearances of three women in Santa Ana, starting five months earlier. She had seen their faces on the news. All of the women had been working as prostitutes, but it struck Trapp as a far-fetched possibility. It meant there was a serial killer at work, and that was extremely rare. When she told the prosecutor assigned to her case about the meeting, he seemed just as skeptical. I remember him thinking, like, sweet kid. <laughs> you think there's a serial killer out there? And, I'm, I'm, and I remember just kind of, like, joking with him. Like, no, sir, I don't think that. I'm just letting you know that Santa Hannah has these servicing girls. I have a girl. They all work in the same line of work. I'm just giving you the information. Trapp learned that Santa Ana detectives had the cell phone records of their missing women. And so the detectives began looking for a phone number in their records that might match a number Estep had called or received, a number that might connect the four women. But there was no common number. Near the beginning of the third week, the forensics lab called. The lab had been combing through the pieces of trash found around Jure Estep's body. One of the pieces was a caulking tube, the kind used in home remodeling jobs. The caulking tube had one good fingerprint. The print was fed into the police database. And soon, Trapp had the name of the man who had left it. And his address. He was a window installer. He lived in a mobile home park not far from where the women had disappeared in Santa Ana. She got his number. He said he would be back home in the late afternoon when his shift ended. She told him she'd come by then. She didn't say why.
From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, this is part two of five of Detective Trap. If you're the victim of sexual exploitation or want to help someone who is, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline. The number is 1-888-373-7888. Again, that's 1-888-373-7888. Detective Trap was written and reported by me, your host, Christopher Gofford. Associate producer is Greta Weber. Story editor is Liza Veal. Original music by Fernando Arruda. Sound design by Marcelino Villapando. Our editors at the Los Angeles Times are Steve Clough and Shelby Grad. Special thanks to Asil Kibbe, Julia Turner, and Abby Fentress Swanson. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.